that the building has to be attractive for occupiers from a using usage perspective as well. It's not all about ESG, but ESG is one of the leading factors today in occupiers' decisions. Welcome back to the Word Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and this is episode seven of season nine, sponsored by Delta Q. In this episode, I'm joined by Sasha Lewin, CEO of WRE London, a value-add real estate developer. We discuss his strategy to repurpose older buildings and bring them up to sustainable standards and give office customers the hospitality and flexibility they want in today's dynamic world of work. I love his perspective on place and community, which we know is very important when considering positive ESG contribution by real estate. Sasha shares why he's bullish on space as a service and his approach to finding the right operating partner. We talk about challenging the status quo in real estate and how WRE often works with up-and-coming consultants who have fresh ideas for value add. Be sure to tune in to the end to hear two solid recommendations in both London and Cannes. As always, if you have any questions or feedback or topics you won't cover, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or DM me on LinkedIn. You may have seen our headline sponsor, Delta Q, just raise 8 million euros to fund their international expansion. Delta Q is the leader in reducing energy consumption and CO2 emissions in the commercial real estate sector. Later in the show, we hear from Delta Q's UK director why this is important for our industry. Without further ado, Jeff, let's kick it. Welcome to the Workable Podcast, Sasha. Thank you for having me. It's great to be having a conversation with you. And first question I have, obviously, we're at MIPM. So how are you finding MIPM? What sort of conversations are you having? It's always great to be at MIPM. Before I come down here, I wonder whether it's going to be of value. But now that I'm here, it's really good to see lots of old faces and meet some new people like yourself and just kind of get a feel for where the world is. That's really the crux of it for us. We don't come here with the view of doing any specific deals, but to get a good understanding of the mood on the street, both in London, which is really our home, but also in in a bigger global sense. Yeah, I was talking to someone else on the podcast this season. We're talking about how deals really don't get done at MIPM. It's the relationships that are forged and the bonds that are built. And then you go off and do the deals later. Hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully, yes. Hopefully. It helps with the sun being out this year. Last year, the was quite gray and overcast, but it's a much, much better vibe this year. In episode one this season, sat down with Lizette Van Dorn, chief exec for ULI Europe. And she talked about the growing gap between supply and demand. And to bridge that gap, investors and asset managers must invest in ESG initiatives. So I wanted to find out what your view is. ESG is obviously on everybody's lips. It's the number one topic that we get asked about, particularly by investors, but increasingly also by occupiers. And it's used to be a box ticking exercise. It's now become an element that is genuinely at the heart of the industry. Occupiers want it, investors demand it, 
and it's here to stay. So I think supply and demand in ESG is still quite difficult to judge because our measure of what ESG really is very crude at the moment. But there is a general understanding of things that are good and things that are not good on the ESG spectrum. And it is fair to say that there aren't many buildings that meet a reasonably high level of ESG criteria from performance to embodied carbon. That gap is only going to widen over the next few years because the industry is slow moving and it's going to take time to reposition and repurpose a lot of older stock. Yeah, 100%. And to me, this gap between supply and demand is a big problem for assets left behind, um, but it's also an opportunity. So personally, I love your approach to redevelopment. Don't build new, buy and repurpose. So I was wondering if you could sort of share, like, what criteria are you looking for when an acquisition opportunity comes into your funnel? You know, first and foremost, it has to be it's still a gut feel. It has to be a building that we believe can be turned into something exciting and special. And it starts with the arrival at the site, at the building. When I get there, I very strongly feel saying, wow, this is a great spot. This is a great piece of real estate. It may be in an unlettable state. It may meet no none of the aspirational criteria that we like to see in buildings today, but it has the structure, it has the bones to become something special. So it's it's very much a feeling. And then we get into the technicalities. Then we try and say, how can we make this building perform and work well? Is it possible? What are the costs involved? What would we do to it? And there are lots of aspects to it. There are design elements to it. There are technical elements to it and of course costs and seeing whether the investment that we believe is necessary can stack up and return an investment that is attractive as well and when all of these things align then we get excited and hope that we can secure the site and get stuck in going back to esg for just a moment when you're looking at buildings that are coming into the funnel you're already saving on the you know carbon output by not building from scratch and you're just you know starting to repurpose but to bring buildings particularly older buildings up to sustainable standards how do you make that assessment to know whether it makes sense for you to buy the building or, or not it's it's a cost assessment at the bottom line it always comes down to numbers there you know we will look through the building both from a from an ESG perspective and other factors as well, which we think are equally important to, to occupiers and therefore to any investment, and try and understand how can we turn this current structure into a high-performing ESG-friendly or leading, ideally, building. And that involves interventions to obviously all the mechanical and engineering elements to the building so running that building off a low energy basis all electrical seeing if some energy can be generated on site whether heat pumps are available or an option here but also beyond that into the facade and seeing how well does this building perform with heat retention and cooling so once we get a feeling for that we can do an assessment of the costs and the benefits that that we can derive out of it and 
it's there's no it's not rocket science it's just a lot of data points that get put together to make an assessment and beyond that the building has to be attractive for occupiers from a using usage perspective as well it's not all about esg but esg is one of the leading factors today in occupiers decisions Certainly with the value add strategy to be able to come in and bring it up to sustainable standards, there's obvious increase in value from a customer's perspective at, at the minimum. You know, when I was reading your bio, it says you work with up and coming consultants. And that struck me as interesting phrasing. And I was curious. So wonder if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, I mean, we like working with up and coming consultants. And usually these are consultants who've come out of big practice somewhere. This could be engineers, this could be architects, this could be project managers who set up shop themselves and come with new ideas and different enthusiasm to projects. It's not the cookie cutter approach of let's roll out what we've done before because it works and it generates the fees we need. It's about a genuine passion in many cases um, to do something different, to do something new, to shake things up and And that's exciting. So we are very keen to meet good new people and try and give them a chance where we can. I like that a lot. Since we're talking ESG again, let's pop over to Adam Gadiali, Delta Q's UK director. Adam, the Workbolt audience is made up of office real estate professionals spanning 50 countries. Tell us a little bit about your international expansion plans for Delta Q and why that's important for office buildings. Reducing energy consumption is a major challenge for real estate organisations, especially since the sector is responsible for nearly 30% of the European Union's carbon emissions. Delta Q is a purpose-driven organisation and we partner with the largest real estate companies in the world to fight climate change and to help our customers towards net zero carbon with our triple strategy. This is what we like to call Map Plan Act. Thank you, Adam. More on Delta Q's triple strategy later in the show. Throughout this many seasons of this podcast, I talk about challenging the status quo and how real estate needs to stand up and say, okay, things can be done better and let's bring in fresh ideas. So to bring in up and coming people and even people from outside the industry sometimes that are just getting into the industry, they bring such a different perspective. So I, I really appreciate how you're approaching that. Thank you. So earlier this season, Daniel Chang, head of ESG in Europe for Heinz, said that the S of ESG is just as important as the E. Obviously, we talk about the E a lot in in real estate. He talked about making a positive impact locally and curating community. And uh, I wrote an article last year called The Three C's of CRE, one being curation, one being community. So I'm curious to hear WRE's approach to the S in ESG. The S is at the center of what building needs to address and really important element of the ESG approach in in our buildings. I think a building is about community in many ways. It obviously physically sits in a certain space that is part of a local community. That community can be very small, it can be a larger community, but it belongs to a place. And it's not just about the people that are inside the building, it's also about the people that walk past this building every day, that interact with this building in a subliminal way. 
So any building that we've got the privilege to be working on will impact a lot of the local people in a probably quite profound way, depending on the size and the you know, specific location, of course, it's different. So there is a responsibility there, but also an opportunity to hopefully create something better, something more beautiful, something that improves the local community. And then it goes inside the building and what companies or occupiers that are going into a building are looking for is to nurture a sense of community within their workplaces. So this can be done by a business or it can actually be also achieved the way that the building is managed and run, whether it is a serviced office, for example, or it has some interaction with the outside world, a community use in the building. Maybe it's a cafe, maybe it's a ground floor space that can be accessed by community or even retail. So trying to work through all of these different aspects can be quite tricky, but also very rewarding if you get it, if you get it right, because you center your building stronger in its location and you create a space that people feel more connected to. I love how you say that a building belongs to place and then the people in that place, the community, can be affected in a profound way by that building. And I think, you know, often when we think about real estate, we think about making money in return for investors. And when we put people at the center of the universe, it really, I feel like it changes the perspective on a project. Okay, we're going to go into this place and we're going to take this building and we're going to make it something different. What does that mean for that local community, not just the people in the building. What does it mean for the local community? That's just fascinating to me. And I appreciate your nod to serviced offices often. And, and I've said this before that I believe space as a service should be the anchor of an assets leasing strategy that delivers hospitality led service in a fully connected way for the building's customers. And those customers are obviously the employees of the, what I say, tenants of the building, but also people around that might come in on a given day or meeting or who might pass by or if they're coming to the cafe and it should be a hospitality led experience for everybody. So I'm just curious, is WRE leaning into the growing demand for space as a service? A hundred percent. We think space as a service is absolutely the direction in which the commercial real estate industry is moving quite rightly. I think it's a hugely exciting shift. It's not new, but it has gathered enormous momentum following the pandemic and there are so many interesting approaches being tried and tested. New operators are popping up every day, certainly here in London. You know, we are very close to that market and watching with great interest to see what works well, what can be done better maybe, and trying out different ways of working with a number of different operators as well to see what's the best solution. That leads me on to my next question. I was originally going to ask if you had an in-house team or do you curate the right operator for an asset, but it sounds like you have relationships with a few different operators. So I'm curious, how do you approach that? How do you decide what operator, which building, or you know, do you partner with an operator across your portfolio? For us as a business, we work with different investors on very different schemes. We've got projects from 
core Mayfair with our 75 Grosvenor Street through to our Arding and Hobbs building by Clapham Junction. So working with one operator or even setting up our own operation in-house never felt that it was the right solution because different assets probably demand different approaches. The way we choose the operators that we work with is really on meeting them, seeing what they've done before, listening to their visions and ideas and try and find someone that understands or shares the same ethos that we have or maybe even excites us about you know ideas that we didn't have of what a building that we're working on could become in the way that it's managed and run so we've i don't know how many but there's there's quite a few different service office operators that we are currently working with and and many more that we are keen to be working with going forward i could probably recommend one or two <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure you can no, that's good. I think you're spot on there that uh, every asset's different. And uh, I don't think there's a cookie cutter approach out there. But I do think, and I say this a lot, brand matters. And the brand solution for an asset is determined by that community. Who are we serving? You know, that ultimately is the driver. Of course, the numbers have to make sense as well. So it's sort of like a two-headed coin, so to speak. But uh, great to hear that you're leaning into space as a service. And I agree, it is the future of real estate. All right. I'm going to end this on a bit of a lighter note. So based in London, so am I. So, so I'm, you've been in London longer than I have. I'm curious if you have a favorite dinner place. A favorite dinner place? We work in Soho. I spend a lot of my time in Soho. And I think for dinner or for lunch, one of my favorite places here is Duck Soup. It's a small restaurant on Dean Street that's very much part of the local community. Fantastic food, excellent wine list. I highly recommend it. Okay. And is it called Duck Soup? Duck Soup, yes. Is it Thai? Is it French? It's contemporary, modern, probably European. I don't know where the name comes from. I did ask once and God was given an answer, but I can't remember. You had me a good wine list. A good red would paired with some duck if it, do, if it does indeed have duck on the menu. Uh, it's a very change, very often frequent changing menu. So it possibly may not have duck when you get there, but do give it a try. Okay. And what about Cannes? Do you have a favorite restaurant in Cannes? I really like La Pizza, big pizza restaurant by the Old Harbor. I've been going there since my first time I've been to Cannes. And, Is that the um, one with the red? It was all, it's all red on the outside? It's all red on the outside. It's a local institution. The pizzas are huge. So when you order pizza, they only, you only get half, but it is the size of a normal pizza. And you know, when I was young, it was the only place I could just about afford. So I really keep going back now with a bit of nostalgia. There's possibly better food to be had in Cannes than pizza, but if you fancy a pizza, this one is good. Well, there you go. I often fancy pizzas. I will check out La Pizza in Cannes. Sasha, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights. And we'll put links to your website for WRE in the show notes and to your LinkedIn. Thanks for having me. It's always good to talk and I look forward to listening to the series. Thank you for tuning in today. And until next time, take care of yourself. Before we close this episode out, a final update from Adam Gadiali on Delta Q's triple strategy. As I mentioned earlier, everything we do needs to help the commercial real estate sector drastically reduce its carbon emissions. That's our purpose. 
We start with connecting building portfolios with our AI solution and commit ourselves to clear results, which include CO2 and energy reduction, operational efficiency and comfort optimization. Firstly, in order to reduce the building's energy consumption, we deploy our technology across building portfolios. We do this by mapping the building through a digital diagnosis or creating a digital twin of the building. This also includes precise local weather forecast and occupancy data. Secondly, through planning, which is where we conduct a physical diagnosis of the building with our HVAC and BMS specialists to ensure that the availability of data is as closely aligned with reality. From there, we identify building and system anomalies, build a roadmap towards savings and advise on the carbon return of retrofit investments. Thirdly, by taking action. This is where we take both digital and physical data and automate repetitive savings through our AI steering of the HVAC systems. That's our triple strategy. There you go. What an important purpose. Be sure to visit DeltaQ.io to learn more and listen to episode eight this season where I got to sit down with Delta Q's CEO, Khadija Nadia at MIPUM for a deeper dive into their purpose of helping the real estate sector on the road to zero. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and remember, fortune favors the bold. Drumroll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com.